The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So, Father, we come now again, another week, needing your help to see and love Christ more from your word, empowered by your spirit. So help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Here we are in our next text, uh, verses 18 to 25, and it's another kind of hard word that came after a hard word last week. Peter's not giving us any breaks. So we, we looked at last week what it would have been a hard word of submission for a people under a leader like Nero, who if you read history, likely started his own city on fire and blamed Christians, a leader that would certainly eventually round up Christians and use them as torches at his immoral parties. We talked about last week how we're called to submit in areas where we're not called to sin so that when we must resist the authorities because they are asking us to disobey God, it shows we're actually standing for Jesus Christ. It's a unique, it's a distinct resistance. This is what it means for Peter to be free, to be a totally invested in being a servant of God, submitting to those he calls us to submit to when it's not sin, and standing against them if they do require us to sin because we ultimately serve the Lord and not man. And we're talked about how we're just going to see this theme throughout these chapters. Our passage today, I think, would have been another hard word maybe for the Christians in this time to hear. Peter uses a different word here for slaves than he did a few verses earlier when he was speaking about us as slaves of God. The word here is used for household servants, and I think the reason Peter uses that word is that until chapter 3, verse 7, so if you look at verse 18 of chapter 2 till verse 7 of chapter 3, he's now addressing the typical Roman household, which would have been a husband and a wife and a children and their slaves. But as I've researched, most of these folks would have been much more seen as slaves, in other words, people owned by their masters, rather than servants in some kind of business arrangement. And so here's what I want to do to start the sermon. Many of us are aware of the dehumanizing horrors of slavery in our own country, in our own history, and the abuses that characterized all of it. If you're not aware, <laughs> you should get aware. We want to know our history and know what happened so because of that, we often hear this, this word, slaves or servants, and we, we see our Bibles through that lens. And so what I want to do to start this is talk about four ways that Roman slavery was a little bit different than our American slavery, and two ways I think it was just about exactly the same. So let me first tell you the four ways I think it was a little bit different. First... Roman slavery was more diverse in its supply of slaves. In American slavery, we know the supply of slaves well, and that's been well documented. In Rome, 
most of the slaves were prisoners of war from these vast areas of the empire where it was, it was conquering. So instead of killing many of these people, they would make them slaves and servants in their households. However, we also see some cases of people who sold themselves into slavery, maybe for a season to pay off debts, and others who were simply born into slavery as well. So it was more diverse in its supply. Number two, it was more diverse in its service. In other words, the purpose of these slaves. Roman household servants did many different things. So if you went to Rome back in the day and saw these servants or slaves, you would see some of them as the doctors and the teachers and the musicians and even the managers of very large estates. You would also see many of them doing hard labor in the mines and other hard labor around the homes with long hours. As we'll see from Peter, some were treated almost as friends of the family and others were treated unjustly and very cruel. So diverse supply, diverse service. Number three, Roman slavery was not carried out along racial lines. In American slavery, there was a clear oppression of black image bearers legalized and carried out. Roman slavery does not follow that pattern. Rather, it was driven simply by the places it had conquered. They were equal opportunity in making slaves. They just conquered people and took them in. And number four, lastly, the last difference, Roman slavery did have some provisions for freedom. There were laws on the books outlining processes for freedom. It was really limited, and it was seldom used, but it was sometimes possible. So as Peter writes... He's writing into a little bit more diverse situation where there were lots of variables at play. What we'd like to do sometimes is go, well, that just makes it better and easier for us. It's an easier word. However, let me also say what was similar about these two forms of slavery. Number one, it was systematic. In other words, this whole society was driven by slave labor. The number of slaves in the empire was in the millions, and in things I read, sometimes slaves made 30 to 60% of the population. So think about 60% of the population being enslaved to their masters. And therefore, you can imagine, because of how systematic it was, how much they relied on it, there was great, great encouragement to keep the enterprise going. So systematic, and the second way it's similar is that it condoned sin all the time. So yes, there might have been some, some masters that were kind. Yes, there were some that might have been treated like family, but it condoned sin all the time. Aristotle and other philosophers of the day, the most popular philosophers, can be found quoting regularly that these household servant slaves are not any more than property, not worthy of the dignity of their masters. There are a bunch of quotes that talk about different tools in the hands of their masters, and the only difference is some can speak and some can't. So we shouldn't act like this was always a much different, much prettier version. 
Because of the diversity of the system, the masters varied between better and worse, kinder and more cruel. But when there was cruelty and beating, it was always justified in the eyes of Rome because they were not seen as image bearers of God, no matter how nice some of them were treated. So those are the the horrors of slavery. Human beings devaluing other human beings for the sake of power and position. It's ugly. And this is what Peter is writing into. This is another hard word. And what we'll see again is Peter is going to do something that only makes sense if Jesus is as real as he really is. If if we're really a new people with, with new identities, he's going to shift their focus to the hope of their new identity. It's like it's likely that many of the new believers were slaves. Think about 60% of the empire being slaves. Probably many Christians were. And Peter wants them to remember their primary identity as free in Christ to follow him. The main thing he's going to do is shift their identity focus. With that background, let's dig into the text. First, let's look at suffering servants who are enduring for God. Look at verses 18 to 20 with me. It says, Servants, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. As we dive into these verses, I want you to remember verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. The call to fight our own sinful desires and to fill the places that the Lord has placed us with beautiful conduct that shows the beauty of our King. That's the point of chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through chapter 4, verse 11. And I want you to notice two repeated phrases from our passage last week and our passage this week. These two phrases that just are going to ring through all the way, verse 7. The phrases are, be subject and do good. Be subject and do good. We saw it last week. We see it this week. And we're going to see those phrases next week. What's going on there? Write a general posture of submission to those in authority and a commitment to do good as God defines good. As these commands are obeyed in real life, be subject, do good, there would be a need to walk in radical submission to Christ and walk in supernatural wisdom. Just got to get into the weeds here a little bit. What do I mean by that? Supernatural devotion to Christ and supernatural wisdom. Well, Peter is asking these household servants to generally have a posture of submission to those that are over them, those who might not even think that they're image bearers of God. And yet he's also asking them to fill that spot they're in with beautiful conduct that ultimately submits to Christ. Now, certainly part of the posture of the good, part of the good that they would do would be this posture of submission. So it's part of the good. But we'd have to realize that doing good as a servant of Christ could mean problems. It might mean resistance sometimes, not submission. A servant with a master that might ask them to do something that is evil in God's eyes 
would have to say, no, I can't do that. You're not my ultimate master. I'm not submitting to you for you. I'm submitting to you for Christ. And I won't go where he says I can't go. So here again, we have general submission that will shine the faithfulness to Christ when there must be resistance. Now, where might these things come into conflict? Well, you can imagine, and there's stories about this, so I'm getting these kind of generalizations from different stories I read. You can imagine a servant that has come to know Jesus Christ and call him Lord, being asked to participate in the family worship of one of the many Roman gods. They wouldn't be able to do that. And imagine as a a slave, someone seen not even as an image bearer of God, and your master says, come and, and worship with us, and you have to say, no, I don't serve you. Serve the Lord. What might that lead to? Or you can imagine a slave beginning to have the courage to speak up against the cruel, unjust treatment of themselves or others as they follow Christ, saying, no, that's wrong. They're made in God's image. You can't do that. You can't treat them that way. And you can imagine what might happen. Or you can imagine a servant wanting to gather with believers nearby and a master finding out and punishing them because of the horrible way that Christians were characterized. So yes, general posture of submission, but doing good in submission to the Lord as ultimate master is certainly going to mean some resistance. It's not always just going to mean blind submission. A general posture of submission, yet an ultimate allegiance to doing good as defined by God. Notice that Peter doesn't urge them to avoid suffering. He urges them to suffer for what is good and not what is evil. This is another similar call to our last passage. Should not use our freedom as a cover-up for evil. Shouldn't use our freedom in Christ as an excuse to, to sin and dishonor other people. In the same way, these servants should not suffer for doing evil deeds. Rather, they should fill up the place they find themselves with the good of God, beautiful conduct. And if they suffer for that, then Peter says it's a beautiful thing in the sight of God. And he gives them two phrases to help them walk through this suffering. The first phrase is that they should be mindful of God. I'll just say it. I mean, imagine being a, a slave. How much more would you have to fight the battles in your mind to obey a command like this than we have to fight the battles in our mind? I mean, how much more mindful of God and the gospel would you have to be moment by moment to walk these things out than we have to be even in the day we live in. In everything they do, they're mindful of God. This is actually the word for their, their consciences. In other words, they're always to have their consciences calibrated towards God and therefore be eager to submit as He is calling them to, even if it means suffering. You can imagine those moments where they just, they just want to retaliate and sin against their masters who treat them cruelly. They have to calibrate their minds towards God, walk like Christ, or the moments where, man, it'd just be easier to do the family worship of this pagan God. And so they have to calibrate their minds towards God and follow Jesus. Second phrase he gives them is this, this promise that it's a gracious thing in the sight of God to suffer. As they 
obey their God and calibrate their conscience towards him, even when they suffer for doing good, even when they endure unjust treatment by cruel, twisted masters, they will find God's grace coming to them in his presence. God will be with them in their suffering. He will pour out grace for the moment and grace to endure as they obey him as their ultimate master. Peter calls this suffering grace. Do you consider your suffering grace? It's the word. It's just grace in the text. A gracious thing is how they say it, but it just says grace. As you suffer, do you consider it grace to you? Is this God's grace towards you? Again, Peter is calling Christians to fill the sphere of influence where God has placed them with the beautiful conduct that points to the beauty of their king. That the aroma of Christ would infect every nook and cranny of their society. Now this begs the question, does the Bible not care about the wrong attitudes found in slavery? And here's how I would answer really briefly, and we can talk more if you want to. I think it does, but for Peter, thinking of his people, this, this new nation inside of a, a pagan nation, rather than a focus on societal change appealing to pagan rulers, what Peter appeals to is a change from the inside out, from a new nation within the empire. Peter is saying, be Christian. Saturate this place with the aroma of Christ. Let them see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Saturate this place with gospel behavior and gospel deeds and gospel hope and gospel confidence and gospel submission and gospel resistance. And I think we see that kind of thing throughout the rest of the New Testament. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 21 to 23. He's talking about these different stations in life, and he says, Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. And likewise, he who is free when he was called, is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Paul is appealing to their new identities. Are you a servant? Well, you're free in Christ. Are you free? Is that your identity? No, your new identity is that you're a, a slave of Christ, bought with a price, all of us with our ultimate master as Jesus and not man. Or in the book of Philemon, or Paul's writing to Onesimus about his slave that had run away and Paul's going to send him back. Paul implores him to think of the return of his servant no longer as a servant, but as a brother. And then he says something so extreme to say, and receive him like you'd receive me. Receive this runaway slave like you'd receive an apostle of the living God. And then Paul ends this way. If I'm Onesimus reading this, I'm feeling some pressure. He says, I am confident that you will do even more than I say. Notice the reordering of identities again. No longer master-slave primarily, but brothers in Christ. In other words, where the gospel takes root and creates a new nation and a new family with allegiance to Jesus as the ultimate, and love for one another with deeper roots than any other identity, slavery cannot exist. 
They can't exist in that environment. The roots of slavery are pride and power, and the gospel of Jesus pulls those out by the roots when it brings about humility, self-giving family love, and a recognition of the image of God in every human being. So in the New Testament, we see this pulling out by the roots of the enterprise of slavery. Yet, while this enterprise remained, Peter called them to submission and doing good that would show the beauty of their ultimate master. While this enterprise remained, Peter called them to be mindful of God in all they did, willing to endure suffering, knowing that God would pour out his gracious power and presence to sustain them. Imagine the counter-cultural witness it would have been to see a servant as submissive to their master as they could be, yet with ultimate allegiance to God and resisting only where it meant they had to disobey Jesus. The good and beautiful conduct would have been impossible to ignore, and eventually Jesus would be seen to be supreme and sufficient as their Savior and their Lord. And if you read history, eventually that's exactly what happened in Rome. Not in a year, not in a month, but over time, it was seen and appreciated. Point number two, the suffering servant who endured for us. So why does Peter call them to this? Where will he go to encourage them where the Lord has placed them? Well, he's going to show them that in their carrying out this place, they are shining forth the beauty of the ultimate suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Look at verses 21 to 23. It says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's a, it's a weighty word just to read for to this you have been called. Called by who? God. Called to this. What a calling that would be. What a, how would you take that in if you were in this position? But we know that God places us where he will for his purposes. Easy or hard. Christ also suffered leaving an example for them to follow. And all these pictures are taken from Isaiah 53 that speaks of the suffering servant of the Lord who would come to suffer unjustly, to redeem people from their sins and create a new people. We could sum it up by saying Jesus did good. Right? He, he never committed sin. Can you imagine someone like that? Can you imagine a day without sinful thoughts? or actions in your own life. Jesus never sinned. Nothing has caused me to worship personally in my own life than just meditating on that about my Savior, that he was here for a long time and he never sinned. He came into our mess and there was no deceit found in his mouth, never misleading words, never manipulation, never telling half-truths, he always did good. He was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. And not only that, imagine being someone like that. 
never sinning, completely righteous, never actually guilty of anything. And then when you're mocked and reviled, you don't defend yourself. You don't match the mocking or the reviling. You're silent. He keeps his eyes on his father. He suffers unjustly and he doesn't threaten or shake his fists at the unjust masters ordering his beatings and mocking and crucifixion. Instead, he entrusts all things to his father, the one who always judges justly and the one who will bring about final, perfect justice for eternity. Perfect justice is coming. It will either come in eternal punishment in hell for those who reject Christ or by grace it has already come on the cross of Christ for those who trust Him. How could these servants endure unjust treatment and continue to do good in hard suffering? Peter's answer is follow Jesus. Follow Jesus on the path of suffering. Follow Jesus when He was mistreated by cruel, unjust masters. Follow Jesus. You have the, the, the privilege of God placing you here and calling you here and shining forth the glory of Christ. Follow Jesus, entrusting the one who judges justly. Keep doing good with Jesus as master and submit to the foolish masters of your household over you, knowing that your desire is that they would see Jesus and be saved. But if not, knowing that they will be judged by the perfect judge one day soon. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. You don't have to seek vengeance. It belongs to the Lord. He's going to take care of it on the last day. As they were called to endure and do good, Peter reminds them that they have a Savior and Lord who himself was the suffering sinner who came to suffer unjustly at their hands to save them. That's what he's pointing them to. He is their example. He understands their pain. He has walked this path before them. He promises to be with them as they follow him, and he will bring about ultimate justice one day soon. So how do we apply this? Uh, I watched a uh, Pastor John's sermon on this, and he said, the principles are clear, the applications escape me. That's kind of how it feels, and you're trying to, how, how do I apply this to, to us? So I've been wrestling through, how do I apply this? And I decided the best I could do is make the argument from the greater to the lesser. Here's what I mean. If Peter could call these servant slaves to this kind of Christ-like suffering, this kind of Christ-like submission, this kind of Christ-like doing good with the promise of the Lord's presence and favor and justice coming, then we must entrust ourselves to him as our chief shepherd as well. If he could call them to this in their situation, certainly there's enough of his promises and presence for us. Listen to verses 24 to 25 to remember what he's done. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We sometimes forget that we were strained towards eternal punishment like foolish sheep, but that God returned us to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Sometimes forget that. Do you ever just forget how ignorant you were towards God? How boring He was to you? How much you ignored Him? How much you didn't care about His ways? 
Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. Jesus has begun the process of healing our souls by his blood, by the indwelling presence of his spirit. Those promises were enough for Peter to call for radical obedience and beautiful behavior and suffering and submission of these slaves. Certainly they're enough for us as well. In this day that feels so hard, certainly they're enough for us as well, aren't they? Aren't they enough for us? We're not there. We're not them. We're not quite in that kind of situation. Certainly they must be enough for us as well in this season. So the question is, do you seek with every moment of your life, with every breath, do you seek to entrust all of your life to God? Just give it all to him, trusting the one who judges justly. I find that I need to do this even as a good Calvinist. Right? Even as one who, who believes with all my heart that God is sovereign and I am where I am right now speaking, saying because he put me here and because he's holding me together by the word of his power. If he stopped speaking, I'd stop speaking. I believe all that and I need to remind myself, do I trust him with my life? Do I trust him with my, my family? Do I trust him with, with my family's suffering? Do I trust him with broken church relationships? Do I trust him with a pandemic? Do I trust him with civil unrest? Do I trust him with people who are fighting in anger? Do I trust him with all of that? Do I trust him? Moment by moment, am I mindful of him? Am I conscious of him? This is simply the call for us in all of the brokenness and suffering of this life in general. It doesn't matter if it's cancer or criticism. It doesn't matter if it's disability or division. It doesn't matter if it's broken bodies or broken relationships. Do we give it to God? Do we entrust it to God? Do you have open hands that say, not my will but yours be done? Are his promises enough as you endure pain and persecution? Sometimes we just need to stop and remember his promises. Remember that God has numbered my days before there was one of them. I've just been walking in that lately like, here's another day that you've numbered. You've got good works for me to walk in. Here's another day that you've numbered. And, and as you're the one who's numbered all my days, you're also the one pursuing me with goodness and mercy all the days of my life. You're the one that's predestined me unto adoption as your child, pursuing me with goodness and mercy. Once I was in the kingdom of darkness, now I'm in the kingdom of your beloved son, and I get to walk in the good works you prepared for me. I need to remember that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for me, how will he not also with him graciously give me all things I need to endure? I need to remember that my Savior knows suffering and is well acquainted with grief so that he is a merciful high priest who is always with me and even now as I speak interceding for me. I need to remember that I was broken beyond repair without any ability to heal myself and by his wounds I have been healed. Are those enough for us? And if they're not, if you're just like right now, they're just not, that's okay Take it to the cross. Say, Lord, help me see reality. Help me see ultimate things. Help me see what's most true about me. Help me see what most defines me. Help me see what promises are most real. There are so many times when as the world comes crashing in on you and the information overload happens that Jesus feels like the furthest thing from what's real. He is the most real thing in the universe whether the whole universe denies him or not. 
and he always will be. And listen, there very well could be days ahead where mocking and maligning of Christianity will continue to be on the rise. Peter says, don't be surprised by the fiery trials. You may find those in authority over you eager to cause you pain and malign you. Perhaps it's an employer. Perhaps it's a local official. There are all sorts of places in this world where authority exists. What do you do? You submit to them where you can, and you fill wherever you are with beautiful conduct that shines the beauty of your king. You entrust your whole life to God. Just give it all to him. Every moment of every day, live all of your life mindful of God. Know that he promises his presence and power to endure. Know that ultimate justice is coming soon. And when you know his perfect love, when you've entrusted it all to him, it will drive out fear of anything else. Saved one last little point here for the end, and I want you to look back at verse 18. And it says, Be subject with all respect. Well, that word for respect is the same word we have for fear. We just saw in verse 17 where it says, Fear God. It's the same word we see when it says to fear our Father back in chapter 1. And I think the call is to carry out this submission in the fear of God. Saying, tremble before God, walk before God, be mindful of God as you do this. In other words, you can do this hard word and fill this place with the beauty of Jesus because you walk in a holy trembling before God more than you fear any man. The fear of God casts out all other fears because perfect love casts out fear. The fear of God reminds you that you're a child of God and can submit even to his hard words because they are for your good and you can trust him and follow him and obey him. So my final question for you is you compare where we are with the people being addressed in this passage. Do you operate from fear of God or fear of other things? What fills your head? What do you think about when you first get up in the morning? What do you think about as you're falling asleep at night? Where does your mind wander when you have a little downtime? Where do your conversations drift to when you're not being all Christian and really intentional? Do you operate from fear of God or from fear of other things? Are you prone to shake your fist and fight back? Are you prone to anger and harsh words and fighting fire with fire? Are you prone to do good to those who hate you and entrust your life to God and walk in love? Now, I'm not, I'm not talking right about submitting to, to evil, whether that's in a marriage or in a nation or at an employee. I'm not telling you to, to cheat when your boss says you to cheat or to, to withstand abuse in a marriage when it's happening or to do evil things to support abortion or something like that like our government has made legal. I'm not saying any of that, right? Do good. <laughs> Submit where you can. Fear God, not man. What I'm talking about is the disposition of your heart. It is very easy to do the right thing sometimes on the outside. What I'm talking about is the disposition of your heart, angry, harshness, fighting fire with fire, prone to think bitter thoughts about those you don't agree with. Or are you prone to do good to those who hate you as you entrust your life to God and walk in love? We are no longer slaves 
to fear of other things because we live in the fear of God and therefore free to love others even in the most difficult circumstances. So I want to end by reminding you of the words of Jesus that we read last week from Luke chapter 6, verses 33 to 35. Here's what Jesus said. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But love your enemies. Do good. Lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So Father, this is a radical call that you must fulfill in us by your Spirit. We confess we need your help, and yet we confess uh, that we fail all the time. So Father, grant us the freedom to walk in this kind of radical love for others because we've been so radically loved by you. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.